Welcome to the Observer Effect, a podcast of travel stories. Each week, we hope to bring you a conversation with someone we meet overseas, and at least one good story. This week, we go back to Chicago, the city of immigrants, for part two of our live show there. I'm so sorry not to have put this out right away after part one. Hurricane Ophelia knocked out our power here in Ireland two weeks ago. We weathered the storm in a farmhouse surrounded by murky green fields full of cows and seagulls who sat down while trees blew over and waves of rain lashed them and the stone walls. Then came Storm Brian a week later. This is episode 71, All My Most Cherished Prejudices, Burma, where Kathy had to wait. I asked Kathy Larson, my former boss, to speak at our live show because she's told me so many stories of lives transforming at the English Language Academy at DePaul University, where she's worked for decades. I wondered how her perch overlooking the crossroads of international students from countries all over the world has changed her, and if she can even put it into words, or just gush. I'm okay with just gushing. Kathy is good at gushing. We met at the Jane Addams Whole House Museum because so was Jane Addams. She started a settlement house in Chicago's immigrant neighborhood more than a hundred years ago, saying a settlement is, above all, a place for enthusiasms. The idea was to reach out and try to help immigrants with the understanding that they will change you more than you will them and for the better. She goes on, if I may illustrate one of these discoveries from my own experience, I would cite the indications of an internationalism as sturdy and virile as it is unprecedented, which I have seen in our cosmopolitan neighborhood. When a South Italian Catholic is forced by the very exigencies of his situation to make friends with an Austrian Jew, representing another nationality and another religion, both of which cut into all his most cherished prejudices, he finds it harder to utilize them a second time and gradually loses them. He thus modifies his provincialism, for if an old enemy working by his side has turned into a friend, almost anything might happen. Go back and listen to part one, which we might call the student's perspective. This now is the teacher's perspective. Wow, what a treat. (laughs) (laughs) So um, we've had these conversations before in your office many times, but I think this will be 
uh, much deeper. <laughs> there was a Burma airstrip, yes, there was, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Before we get to Burma, you, I think you know the drill by now. Can you describe what you look like, not so much for these people, but for the, the audience listening to this podcast? Uh, first time I've been asked that question. Um, well, I'm a progressively shrinking <laughs> five, two and a half-ish um, woman who's been alive for a number of decades um, with a little bit of graying hair in brown um, that used to be down to my waist for most of my life. Um, an eventful change uh, of cancer changed that and I've had short hair since it has grown back. Um, I never knew that. Until, there are stories, there are stories. Um, I have blue eyes that come from the recessive genes on my maternal side that's a combination of Chinese and Irish English and my paternal side uh, with the Swedish that's where the Larsen comes from. So I lucked out with the blue and my brother and my sister ended up with the brown. Um, I'm sort of a compact body that um, sits more than she would wish to sit, but kind of comes with the territory right now, but Thank that's so me. Mm -hmm. And can you describe where we are right now? Hull House. I was actually um, thinking, as you had mentioned this event and the place, um, I mentioned that the maternal side of my family um, includes a Chinese grandmother and an American uh, grandfather. And the story that um, I heard from my grandmother when she moved to the United States as an adult not speaking English, um, a medical doctor by training, <clears throat> excuse me, in China, but unable to practice in the United States because she wasn't able to um, pass the boards. And the stories that she told of the people who reached out to her and supported her um, in making a life for her family resonates a lot um, when I think of Jane Addams and, and, and the work, and that's sort of been part of the fiber of, of my family as well. So it's very meaningful to be here and to be able to experience that. Well, your work, in a way, carries on her work. You are running the, the program at DePaul that trains international students to be able to, to qualify to be in the, the university uh, to raise their, their English level. It's not exactly the same, but I think her goal of appreciating what immigrants bring, uh, of... Um, honoring that and learning from that and exchanging, you know, giving to them but also receiving from them. You definitely carry on that, that spirit. Yeah, I 
wonder, you know, had my grandmother had the opportunity to be in a program like the program we have. It's, it's not surprising to me that I'm in the work that I'm in, um, given where my family has been and um, the places we have come as a, you know, as a, as a people understanding how we can support that, that dream or that goal that may be in front of us. And, and we have some pretty amazing, amazing students. I, I feel lucky that I happen to, not necessarily by choice, but I've sort of been put in the position to um, oversee the program. But at heart, I'm, I'm a teacher, teacher, teacher. And I think it has come from a lot of the experience of my own family and, and um, wanting to reach out in the same way that sometimes happened and sometimes didn't for my own, yeah, for my own family. Do you want to do you want to brag about the the English Language Academy a little bit? You guys just <laughs> had great. a twentieth anniversary in a year ago, I guess. Yeah, right? yeah. Um, well, we're a program, an intensive uh, English language program for students working on uh, academic goals, going on to undergraduate or graduate programs, um, and I have to say, one of the things that I think is true about the ELA and makes it the place that I love and I think my colleagues have um, loved over the years is that um, there is a, a real caring for the students, a real love for the students that's at the core of what we do. And it's easy to get lost in the mumble jumble of academic standards and all of that. Um, but I think at the core, and I have to say, Joe, you know, you, you've been on our staff, and I got the, the lucky chance to see you in action as a teacher, and that's the word I would use, love. You know, that's what was happening in the classroom. And I think it's a rare, rarer, but why, um, piece of what happens in our interactions um, with students. But I think that is what is really distinguishing and um, heart, close to my heart, about the ELA and, and that it creates a home away from home for our students. It creates a family for them when they may be far from their own. Um, I know my colleagues who are sitting here have multiple times, you know, the door gets opened and, and somebody sits down to share their life story or their um, travails, their joys, their sadnesses, um, and I think that's certainly been the core of why I've wanted to stay. And we've been through some struggles, you know, we were, the, the world stage is a little odd right now in terms of where international students choose to go and what they, you know, choose to do, but I, I think that that element, if that somehow disappears, I'm out of there. <laughs> I think that's what's, you know, that's what keeps the flame alive for me. Real care, real love, real respect. Mm -hmm. uh, are you able to estimate how many students you've had an impact on? Like, 
in an average year, I know it really fluctuates a lot, but what's an average enrollment in a year, just so people have an idea? Well, things are very different in the recent uh, year and a half, but we grew from a program of 10 students way back when we started in uh, 96, and at our height, 240 to 50 students. Um, just a couple of years ago, we were close to that. It's about half that now. Um, but in any given year, we probably see different bodies, different students, maybe 400, approximately 400 different students, all with their own kind of stories and trajectories and reasons for mm -hmm. finding their way to us. Um, and I don't even know where to begin or how to navigate all your memories, but I just want to hear some of those stories. You must have witnessed so much change. We, we just talked about um, Anne's story of mm -hmm. choosing to stop wearing her hijab. I know that happened with a student while I was there, mm -hmm. and I never got to sit down with her and hear why, but it was very noticeable. I know that happens a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I think it must be such a shock for students from Saudi Arabia, from China, from Korea, from Japan, from Brazil, to come to Chicago, and you're there seeing that, do you have anything you can share? Hmm. Well, you know, I, I think it's one of the most amazing environments, our classrooms, because we have students, as you said, from all over the world, and it's not just kind of meeting at a coffee hour and saying hello and getting to know somebody for 10 minutes or, or half an hour, but spending every day together, you know, wrestling through English, but wrestling with ideas about what makes the world the world, how we understand it. And it, it's often, I think, um, and teachers who are here, you can back me up on this, that um, it's often the students who teach each other rather than the text or the lesson from the teacher about cross-cultural pieces. I remember a Saudi um, student sitting next to a, a Brazilian student who um, their dress couldn't be more different, you know, kind of <laughs> skimpy and, and very, um, you know, Brazilian beach, close to beach wear and, uh, you know, nearly fully um, covered student who they were wrestling with what to write their research papers about. Um, and they struck up a conversation that was very honest and I think very much more telling and um, making good use of their English to boot, um, where in the end, the, the Brazilian student, um, I remember giving her report um, about including interviews with her classmate and doing a little bit of research. And what had started as a, a kind of blanket, this is unacceptably strange kind of um, view to one that was incredibly uh, sensitive, thoughtful understanding of her classmate. And she was able to then explain 
to her classmates, both in her writing and in her presentation, about how she came to learn what it meant to her, to her classmate. And she was still wrestling with it, but she had a, a much different you know, view of that. Um, and you know, there, there's so many stories of students, I think, who, in choosing a topic to do for a presentation, will dig into some space. Um, I know we had a student who was a, a, a torture victim and who, I know Marianne is, is here, who had um, the student who so courageously um, and in, incredibly um, honestly shared the story as part of his, I want to say, intermediate level spoken class, silenced the room, you know, um, and suddenly it became the reality of, so we are human beings experiencing life in some dimensions that none of us come close to at all. English happens to be the medium for us to share our lives, but at that level, to be able to feel trusted, to be able to feel that you're in a group that cares for you and supports you, I think harkens back to what I think is the best of what the ELA can be, that it's a, it's a safe space for students who may have incredible experiences like that and be able to share them and, and be supported and, and know that there's kind of family of a, of a sort among them. Um, so there have been some very, I think some very profound um, experiences that students have shared as, as well as the student who I remember um, wrote me a quick note saying, I'm sorry, I'm going to be missing class um, on Friday. Um, you know, I'll, I'll try to keep up with the homework or whatever. And I asked her when she came back on Monday, oh, did you, you know, have a little vacation or appointment or something? She said, oh, no, I got married. <laughs> you know, things like this. Um, she had married a, met and married a, an American um, person, but there had been no lead up, no other conversation, and it was just a report of, and suddenly her classmates were, you what? And what happened? And, you know, and that class of grammar turned into use use many uses of verb tenses and many uses of you know all kinds of um, language to unpack what that story was all about but so there there there've been you know all all dimensions of that um, the most recent story that i you know shared very briefly with you um, this summer um, we had a student from kuwait who had nearly completed our program, had gotten to the top level, save for one course that she hadn't passed the first time around. And she was going home to Kuwait, but asked if there was any way that she might be able to do something to make up for that class and, and, and allow her to kind of have the 
certificate that we offer to students in order to um, go into a graduate, to apply for a graduate program in special education. And I sort of heard about that, and we don't normally do distance courses and so forth. Um, and I said, well, what's her story? Um, let me talk to her. So she came in and sat down and shared the story of her family, um, three children, two of whom are severely disabled um, boys, who she has dreamed um, for them and for other children in Kuwait of starting a school for um, children with disabilities and special needs and was very disappointed at what was available currently and wanted to be able to have a degree uh, to study more about the United States and her children were with her here in the US and she was able to see firsthand what kind of school services and experiences her children were having and her two boys in particular. Um, and she said, that's what I want to do. And I said, sign me up, I'm going to do this. And so we figured out how to run the course um, over the internet um, through the summer. and. It was a reading course, and I, I started out by asking her, I said, so what does reading mean to you? What's, what's reading been about? And she said, oh, you know, trying to get through as quickly as I can and figure out what the answer is to something. And I thought, oh, wow, a really well-schooled person. But, um, and I said, is that satisfying? Is that, you know, is that kind of what you'd like to be able to do more of? And she said, no, but... I get tested all the time and I need to be able to figure things out quickly so whatever it is I have that's what I do I said oh okay so um, you've never have you thought about the person who wrote what you're reading no whoever you know the, 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 the author and so forth and do you think the person spent time thinking about what they wrote um, and what they wanted to say and that was a new thought for her and I said well I'm, I'm really not interested in doing kind of speed through to get test answers but I would be interested in having conversations with the people who write what we read and she kind of was puzzled but found it kind of intriguing that that might be a way to go about what we did and the very first chapter interestingly enough in the provided materials in the text was an essay by John Holt um, the alternative education um, and homeschooling advocate and um, since she was interested in schooling and kind of alternative schooling I said well let's Let's read John Holt. She didn't know who he was. We, you know, found out a little bit about him so that she would know. And we started reading through and realized, she said, oh, wow, this is really different when I read it as a conversation with the author. And we spent our summer kind of reading through 
a number of things and talking about what we read and what we thought the author might have been saying and so forth. In the end, she was able to get uh, her course credit, um, completed the course, and just recently came back um, to visit ecstatic that she had applied and been accepted to her graduate program um, in education. And she said, and I said, I bet you've got a heavy reading load. And that's what we always tell our students, which is why we overload them with all this work. And she said, oh, lots of reading, but I am enjoying it so much, she said. And she said, every time I sit down to read, I sit down and I ask myself, am I ready for a conversation? And she says, if I'm not, I put it down and I wait until I am because this isn't about trying to get the right answer as quickly as possible. And I just, I teared up when I heard that and I thought, wow. So that's what we're doing. You know, that's what it is about um, making that connection with students. And I think she's, I mean, She's an incredible inspiration, um, both in, in her dreams and what she wants to do um, academically, and it won't be without challenges. I mean, she has, has lots of things, you know, to, to fill in, but um, on the side, she runs a whole business, runs a, a, a confectionery and a bakery, both in Kuwait and in Chicago. Um, and I thought, wow, if anyone's going to be able to pull this off, Marwa's going to do it because um, she's, she is full steam, 100%. And the interesting thing was our lessons in her home allowed me to meet her children, meet her sons, meet the nurses who cared for her children. And I also got to see her hair, whereas we had always had her um, in school. She was always, um, you know, with her hijab. And, um, and I made a comment about that the first time I saw her on the screen. I said, oh my goodness, it's so lovely to, you know, see your hair. And, and, um, and one of our lessons, the internet wasn't working in her home. She said, can you give me 20 minutes? I'm going to go to my uh, bakery where we have internet and I will, and we can do our lesson there. So I said, sure, and we reconnected. And there she, she had her, you know, she had her veil on. And, um, and I said, I said some comment about, can you show me your, a little bit of your, your store and your bakery where you are? And, and she did, and sure enough, as we were having our lesson, a customer knocked on the door and so forth. And so in that context, she was who she was running her business. and. Um, you know, dressed as she was, but in in the home, we were able to um, really connect both with her family and with what she was working on in, in her um, reading. So that was a real. It's a it's it's a continuing story. I'm hoping there'll be um, you know a, a, a wonderful chance to be invited to a graduation when when that completes. But that's, that's a recent story that was very moving to me about kind of the work we do and what it's, what's possible for students to kind of um, experience when we stop telling them this is about tests and scores and, you know, titles and degrees and things like that. So the, 
the little piece of me um, shared with her that we had homeschooled our children, in fact, because when she first read Holt, she thought this guy is a little nuts. And she was not, she wasn't, she couldn't quite see how that could work. And I mentioned to her that um, we had homeschooled our kids. And suddenly she was full of questions. And she said, really? And how did they you know, do this? And how did they make friends? And so on and so forth. And I kind of explained to her the, what had happened in our family. And by the end of that unit, she said, I started Googling and looking up all kinds of other things about homeschool and different ways of educating and so forth. And she sort of did a complete turnaround. And what she was saying about what she believed for her own children was actually very congruent. It was just labeled funny for her when she read it, you know, as, as something different from an institution. So I thought that was a, another wonderful little connection and a chance to share my story as well, uh, you know, as a parent and, and um, as a teacher make that connection. Well, I, I'm curious about that more. This is uh, the hard question. How has contact with all these foreign people changed you? After that, we'll talk about travel, how that's changed you, but just meeting people again and again. I, I'm curious if you've ever been challenged in your thinking and just in general of how you've changed in that. Well, I've I mean, I face my prejudices and my biases every day. Um, I remember when... You don't have a prejudice bone in your body. <laughs> oh, Lord Almighty, don't... I, I, I'm afraid we all somewhere have some place that we have not explored and understood well. I remember um, when we first started having um, more Saudi students, we would often have... Um, couples, you know, a husband and a wife, and in some cases one would be kind of the primary visa holder and then the second would be what they call an F2 or a dependent visa. And I remember one young woman, one young Saudi uh, wife who was the F2, the, the dependent, and her husband was on the primary visa. And I remember just being surprised when I learned she was a poet. And it blew me away because I realized my whole mental frame was saying, oh, he's the one here to study whatever it is. She's the tag-along. I, I didn't even fathom or think about who she was beyond that. And I caught myself when she mentioned that to me, and I thought, wow. And here I am working every day, you know, many years with many different populations. And I think it's, 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 it's sort of the double edge of what we do. We may meet and know so many students from South Korea or from Saudi Arabia or from Thailand and you know the temptation to kind of lump people together or to think that one person's experience is, is another's 
you know, and it's not true. And I have to stop myself often, you know, and to say, so what's your story? Because you've got your family relationships that are unique within a cultural context, yes. But um, I think it has been sort of this reminder bell frequently, you know, to kind of check check my assumptions, always check my assumptions, and that's part of what we do with our students, but I think I'm the first one to, to have to really examine, you know, my own assumptions about students and, and um, what their motivations are, where, where they're coming from, what they may want. So it's a learning process constantly, yeah, absolutely. Okay, so last question. Tell us your best travel story. Best travel story. Mm. Mm. Wow. There are a lot. <laughs> a lot of stories. Um, wow. Where to where to go to? What what phase of my life? Um, well, I, I give you a couple of snippets of um, maybe how travel, which was sort of part of my life from the get-go. My, my parents um, were educational missionaries in Japan, so I was born and raised there. And um, their idea of taking the every five-year trip back to the U.S. Um, to visit family was not a straight road, but it was to go through as many different um, places as we could on a on a missionary charter at, in in those days. And I think it was my first uh, my first experience with what are no longer the names of these countries anymore. So Ceylon, which is now Sri Lanka, was our you know, our first stop on this journey to go from Japan back to the United States. And my child's, you know, I was about 11, I think, on that, on that trip. And my childhood memories of um, a tropical heat for the first time. And, and then we moved on into um, the Middle East, and Damascus, and the the aromas kind of were a big part of my travel memories. So these wonderful baked breads and the garlicky aromas I remember in Damascus. And, and then we traveled through into Europe and what was Czechoslovakia at that time and East Germany and East Berlin and um, through other parts of Europe and the experience for me was with my family and the idea of trying to kind of get off the beaten path to, to find people who live there and share, um, whether it's share something that we have or vice versa. Um, and I carried that through into the Burma story, um, which, um, happened, yes, back in 70, I want to say 77 or so on a, on, um, on a trip 
with a fellow teacher um, from Japan. And we stopped in Singapore and Malaysia, but Burma was sort of our destination, and Mandalay was where we kind of wanted to go to the Buddhist temples there. And um, we weren't well prepared or that knowledgeable about Burma at the time, but um, as we you know, went on our journeys, there weren't very many foreigners at that time there, and travel wasn't that easy. Um, but we found our way kind of up to um, Mandalay, and we were told that, our, that there would be a, a flight um, back to Rangoon um, for our departure eventually from the country um, at X time, I forgot whatever time that was, and we had gone exploring the temples and um, a number of people sort of noticed us from the side of the road and sort of beckoned to us to come um, come into their home areas and serve us some tea and so forth, and we were, you know, enjoying that. It was it was a wonderful sort of um, chance to peek into the the lives of um, the people there, and and then we, you know, sort of went back to the foreigner's hotel, which was the only place we could stay, and we. Um, got ourselves ready to catch the flight out and got to the airport, which was really a um, kind of a thatched little hut, and there wasn't really a counter or anything, and we noticed a large group of people sitting with baskets um, full of fruits and different goodies and so forth, and kind of just waiting around. There were really no billboards or signs or anything, and um, so we sat and waited, and I can't remember what the time was that was given, but clearly that time came and went and passed, and no one seemed to be perturbed one way or the other. And finally, we sat most of the day, it seemed like it was hours, and finally we were trying to ask somebody, what, are we here at the wrong time or the wrong day? And they finally said, oh, um, well, Burma only has two airplanes. One of them wasn't working. The other one had to leave to Bangkok to pick up the parts to repair the one that wasn't working. That was the one that we were supposed to ride. So I said, okay, uh, so you'll probably want to go back to your hotel. There were no lights on the airstrip or anything, so wouldn't have been able to fly later. So we went back, came back the next morning. Um, there was a plane, but there was no crew um, sitting there, and we learned later they had arrived uh, and, and gone into town and they were looking for them to find them to bring them back to the airport and that that was part of you know the learning about time meaning different things about you know things happen when they happen and if they don't you sort of make do then I understood what all the baskets were with the fruits and the food because they were experienced, they knew that things might not happen in such a quick way. And we were starving because we hadn't you know, brought anything with us and we ended up going back to the, um, the hotel. But that sort of um, experience of sort of being on the inside was one that I think I've always taken with me. And as I grew older, um, we finally had a chance to go back to China to my maternal grandmother's hometown, a small hometown outside of Canton, 
and we traveled, um, you know, with for for most of the local people there, the first time they were seeing people from the outside, and I was moved by the stories of what they knew of my family, of my grandfather, who, um, being a Westerner, um, was kind of heavily criticized during the Cultural Revolution, and a number of the people who had been friends of our family um, told about being sent away to labor camps and so forth because they refused to denounce uh, my grandparents. And that reality of kind of being inside the homes of people who welcomed us in but also had connections to my family, um, that kind of brought a real different reality to me about what happens when people make connections, have relationships, and then feel that loyalty and that friendship challenged by political waves and other, um, you know, other historical things that I read about, you know, in, in school, but didn't fully understand until I heard the stories of my family. And so that idea of kind of stepping into somebody's home and learning the story was brought back in a very real and personal way in, in that travel. And I think that's one of the pieces that I carried with me as I continue the work that I do, where um, we come from, you know, often untold stories, our students as well. Had I not had that chance for these friends of our family, people who had lived with and helped uh, my grandparents, had I not heard those stories from their mouths or the mouths of their children, um, I don't think it would have the impact and the understanding that I have about what really happened, you know, to some people in the Cultural Revolution. What happened in those times that I've read about and heard about in the news? Um, it's had quite a, a, an impact on how I understand my own life, but also the untold stories that are probably sitting right underneath you know, the surface of all of us and certainly all the students that, that come to us. Um, so I, I feel incredibly grateful, incredibly lucky that I've had the chance to learn and be reminded of that often. Um, and the amazing stories that will continue to come out, I'm sure, of, of the folks that we welcome through our doors, you know, every day. Um, it's quite a, yeah, quite a gift, quite a gift that they've shared. Well, that's it. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much, Kathy. Thank you. Thank you so much to Kathy for sharing and for working so hard to change lives. Thank you to the Whole House Museum for hosting us. Thank you to everyone who came to our live show. Thank you to Anne for sharing in part one. 
Thank you to Dana Boulay for her music. Thank you for listening. And thank you to Terry Capsalis for writing that medicine is the meaningful work found in the mutual exchange between people.